Spy Cops Info Podcast, Episode 8, A Legal Chat with Paul Heron. Uh, welcome to the Spy Cops Info Podcast. I'm Tom Fowler, and today I'm joined with... My name is Paul Heron. I'm a, uh, an RLR solicitor who represents uh, 10 core participants. I work for an organisation called the Public Interest Law Centre, and we bring public law challenges against local and national government for their failures in law. For a lot of people, particularly those who like know a little bit about like kind of people bringing cases against the police for the deployment of undercover officers, what inquiries in general are and what this particular inquiry is and how it's set up and what the point of it is, is a bit of a mystery. So I thought I'd have a chat with you about it to see if we can like kind of explain it a bit. I mean, my understanding of a public inquiry is to allow the powers that be to learn lessons. So in effect, it allows the state to learn lessons about its own mistakes. That's my understanding. And obviously, for many core participants, it allows them, I think for most core, I think for many core participants, it probably, they're not necessarily putting that as their first priority in terms of, you know, we want to teach um, the state uh, about all the things it's done wrong so it can learn lessons for the future and make recommendations about how undercover policing should work in the future. I think for most core participants, certainly and speaking for my clients, it's about understanding who spied on them, why they were spied on, and also to try and understand whether it has affected them their life chances, their life in general, or if at all, maybe it hasn't. What's become clear, certainly for my client, who is, as you know, Tom, I represent, uh, I think it's 10 core participants now, but one of my clients who was a leading activist in the kind of Irish rights, anti-internment troops out movement, is what's become clear through the course of the disclosure is kind of two broad things. The first thing is how he his friendship was used by an undercover officer to allow that undercover officer to take a position in the movement. And the second thing is the effect of being spied on and having notes taken and those notes being kept by special branch and also potentially by the security services, is what we suspect is that he's been blacklisted as a result. Um, And so whilst I think a public inquiry is set up to allow the state to, quote, learn lessons, and in some ways it's a good, you know, potentially it's a good thing, you know, in other aspects and you know, there are a number of public inquiries going on. One, for instance, is, um, uh, you know, a, a blood disorder, a blood uh, inquiry, infected blood. And there are important lessons for society to learn. But I think um, whilst it, this inquiry has been set up to learn lessons about 
for the state to learn lessons about undercover policing and whether it went too far, et cetera, et cetera. I guess for activists like you and many other core participants, it's probably much more than that. The inquiry offers an opportunity to, to look at deeper issues about their political activity and about the interference of the state and maybe even learning lessons of how the state interferes with our lives, you know? I think the inquiry, like, the fact there's a public inquiry is a good thing because of the absence of anything else. Yes. Like, I mean, I've never been, like, um, I was never a big fan of, the, of like, the, the law, <laughs> funnily enough, as an anarchist. I, like, when, when I found myself taking uh, civil claims against the police, that was, again, in an absence of anything else to do uh, in order to try and hold the police to account for these deployments. And, like, when when the inquiry was like kind of put forward as something that we should be like demanding, God, going back like seven years or whatever it is now, I was kind of a bit cynical about it. Like, kind of, there's been so many public inquiries which have just, just a, it's an opportunity to kick the ball into the long grass, right? Do you know what I mean? It's like oh, there's inquiry on it now, you know. But then, but then, what else do you do, right? As like as campaigners who like want some, you know, want to bring exposure to an to a historic wrong, how do you know? How else do we have in in British in British society, I guess, to to, to shine a light on something in the past like that, and like you say, I mean, I think like what we, what people like me want at the, at the inquiry, and what the, everybody who's running the inquiry wants at the inquiry are very different. And it's sometimes, I mean, often they're diametrically opposed, right? I mean, I think that's a, a good point. I think they are, and sometimes they're not. I mean, at, at times we can be uh, not cynical. I don't think I don't think that's the right word, but we can be suspicious um, of whether the inquiry uh, is, uh, you know, when, when we say the inquiry, whether we, whether we think the judge and the inquiry legal team are coming with, with open hands, as in we're, we're seeing, we're going to look at everything at face value and, and based on the evidence provided, um, we will, uh, you know, provide a report which will either be broadly supportive of what's gone on or maybe, you know, potentially and hopefully critical of what's gone on. Um, um, and I, I think I, I veer between the two <laughs> as the inquiry goes ahead. I think there are times when I'm, I think, uh, you know, um, lawyers in their opening statements um, and uh, witnesses who have given, uh, you know, in terms of non-state core participants. So when we, when we talk about non-state core participants, for those listening, we're talking about those core participants who've been spied on. It's, I mean, it's basically, it's the public, right? I mean, like, it's such a weird... I mean, I mean, this is one of the things about the whole legal process that's, like, so... I, I think it's so, like, alienating to so many people. Like, it's, like, the only way that the state can, like, talk about people who aren't the police or the state, they have to give us this name, non-police, non-state core participants, is, like, the public. <laughs> that's a good point. So, you know, I think the evidence and the, the evidence that we've given them... Um, you know, the statements we've given, we, we, I think was beginning to score some small points. You know, let's not get carried away. Um, but then part of me is very, very, um, you know, potentially cynical about the inquiry and maybe aspects of the disclosure could be better. I sometimes feel that uh, the inquiry sees us, uh, sees core participants, sees my clients, maybe sees yourself as, a, as an, an irritant that they kind of have to put up with. Um, I sometimes feel that, you know, they're the kind of uh, the gatekeepers to the registry files when, f 
for my clients, they feel that, well, let me see the whole of my registry file and I can make a decision of what's relevant and what isn't. So I think it's, but even when I get, even when I get uh, uh, cynical, and, and certainly my clients get cynical, at the same time, uh, the disclosure that we have had, my clients have had, and I'm sure either you've seen or, or you know, uh, other people have seen as it's been um, uh, listed by, on, the, on the inquiry website, have been extremely interesting and have been thought-provoking and as and and hopefully will will provide a, a a discussion for not just core participants but as you say the general public as a whole is this the kind of undercover policing we've bought into because i think uh the more that we dig into this i think more and the more that it's in the press and various other things i think the general public or, as, or certainly a small section will say no we we can't we're not buying into this. This is not uh, what we think a democratic society should be about, that the kind of undercover policing that's invaded people's lives in such a pernicious way that has led to blacklisting, that has uh, encouraged long-term relationships uh, and all the other uh, revelations that we know have been... Uh, I, I, even what we've discovered so far, I think it, hopefully it provides food for thought for the general public. But then, so like the, the thing is, though, is that, that that's all about the disclosure, the witness statements from undercover cops. It's like, it's almost like it's incidental, that, as far as the inquiry is concerned. And I'm, this is something I've, I've often found when I've had other dealings with like legal processes, is that like the bit that's important that I think is useful, like the disclosure generally, um, is like it's only part of the process. And the, so the main thing, you know, in the case of you know, the inquiry, when they come to like kind of their recommendations, by that point, I think people like myself will be moving on. Like the, the inquiry's recommendations are like pretty irrelevant to me, to be perfectly honest. I think it's understandable that core participants will feel that way. Um, and I think that I've heard other core participants when I've spoken to them to say, actually, the report's already been written. Uh, you know, uh, whatever whatever happens, the report has already been risen. There, there may be, there may be, some um, when the when the report is provided, there may be criticisms of the police uh, where they've aimed their surveillance at kind of good core participants. But then, uh, you know, and 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 um, you know, and then there'll be. I, 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 there may be, uh, you know, there'll be bad core participants as well. And it could be argued, um, and a bit like yourself saying, well, when the recommendations come out, who gives the monkeys? Um, but it could be argued that the report is already written. But I think that misses the point. Um, not that I, I think you're missing the point, but I think it misses the point that even, even if the report that comes out we're not happy with, my clients and you're not happy with, that hopefully the information that we've been able to glean from the inquiry will be enough for the general public to think this is not good enough. And I think I take um, some kind of solace from the, the fight of the, the Hillsborough campaigners who had, uh, you know, uh, inquiry and, and court cases, and they just kept on keeping on. Now, that's not to say we keep on keeping on to get another public inquiry. But what hopefully my core participants and the campaigners can do is use the disclosure strategically and tactically 
to continue to raise the issue in the general public. And if we, if if nothing else, you know, there's two things that come from it. One, that happens, and secondly, what's been refreshing is uh, core participants who are from different political persuasions, different different outlooks about how they think campaigns should be run or how they think society should work better, have largely worked well together during the course of the inquiry. And let's hope that at the end of the inquiry, whether it's three, four years' time, longer, that that can continue. And the lessons that we draw from it can continue when we build campaigns together. Because I think, certainly from my client's perspective, they've built up really good contacts with people that maybe in the past they wouldn't ever consider working with. So, you know, we've got to draw some positives out of it. I think you're completely right on that one. I think that, I mean, that would be a beautiful thing if that was something to come out of it. And certainly I've found myself, you know, working alongside some people who like in the past, I probably wouldn't have given the time of day of politically really, you know, which was my own, my, my, my own fault really that. But I think that it's really interesting the way that you, you kind of put it there. And about this idea that we use it tactically, we use it strategically, we use the information we're getting to go to go back to being doing what we've always been doing, which is like fighting in the court of public opinion, really. And it's this idea that sometimes when people um, talk about doing like, you know, getting involved uh, with public inquiries or taking legal action, there's this idea of sort of speaking truth to power. Um, for me, I think it's it's not it's not about that. Power already knows. <laughs> Power knows full well what, the, what went on. What we're doing is speaking in the teeth of power to the general public, speaking truth to the general public, um, try, and trying to, to 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 get more truth out of out out of you know the power to, to to spread. And I think it's one of those things that you said, like you know maybe maybe the next step is another public inquiry. We, we look at so many other. You mentioned Hillsborough, so many other. Um, injustices in, in Britain that have resulted in like numerous public inquiries in order before they actually start getting to the truth. And there's been so much secrecy in what what I want to start calling the first uh, public inquiry into undercover policing, <laughs> you know, because I think that, that there's, I would expect there to be more because there's been so much this time, you know, particularly when we look at things like the undercover police who haven't even got ciphers, they're so secret. You know, there's, there's so much secrecy this time around. I think that you know, it, it opens itself up for, for further for further public inquiry. But, you know, I mean, like, like I, I go back to what I was saying earlier, you know, I, I'm not I'm personally not at all wedded to public inquiries, but I don't know what else is there that we could do, <laughs> you know, apart from getting a second inquiry after this one. What is is there any other legal maneuver that that we could take that? I mean, I don't think there is, is there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really good question. And I'm not even that sure there is um, beyond, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, uh, I mean, in terms of, I, I, well, to answer your question directly, I'm not too sure there is, if I'm honest. Uh, somebody might be, some other lawyer might be able to come on or another campaigner and have a, a much better idea of than I uh, than I have at this point. Um, in terms of in terms of um, how we use the inquiry, I think um, it's to it's to expose. The, not just the level of secrecy and the level of, um, you know, kind of uh, surveillance, but but I think it's it's more than that. I mean, I think in terms of when, um, as you know, I had client, people will know that the inquiry split into parts uh, to chapters, which they call tranches, and um, you know, you you were there, Tom, where we had tranche one, phase two which was, the, you know, a, a, a sort of 
semi-chapter within the within the tranche. And one of the things that we try, that we try to I, I try to push as part of our legal team is not just that the fact that police officers were um, you know you know sitting at the back of meetings taking notes and reporting, um, but that they were actually beginning to take leading roles or semi-leading roles in the campaign and organisations they were supposed to be spying on, which I think is a, a further scandal, if you like. Not just It's not just sitting at the back of meetings saying Joe Bloggs said this and he needs to be and let's have the file, which is bad enough. But what you had is undercover officers taking positions in various organisations. And as we said in our opening statement, not only taking positions and spying on people and continuing to do that, but being part in key decisions, potentially derailing, potentially getting hold of information for people who were not even political activists, but may have bought the workers' press or the socialist worker. They weren't members, but had a file opened on them. I mean, it's, this is the level that we got to. And, and it's the fact that the officers were actually taking positions away from genuine activists, if you like. So, you know, the example that we gave in our opening statement was Rick Gibson, uh, an officer in the 1970s, um, became one of the leaders of the Troops Out movement, but actually denied another activist the opportunity to play that role. And, and, and again, that's an, you know, it's not just the fact that people had files open on them. It's the fact that officers were taking these kind of leading roles and giving information to all and sundry about, you know, you know, people's bank details, people's personal lives, people, things that were completely irrelevant to, even if you accept this has to go on, which obviously we don't, but completely irrelevant. And I, and I think that is a story that needs to be pushed. And I, I think it's certainly something that my clients are keen to show, that it wasn't just the fact that, you know, as I say, police were sitting at the back. It's the fact that they were taking, you know, leading leading positions, and I think that's, uh, you know, an equal an equal scandal to to what's been going on generally. There's no other real way we would have got this kind of information if it wasn't for the public inquiry. I mean, like we, there's been other legal action taken. There's been civil actions. We've, we've got disclosures from that. I mean, Kate Wilson at the Investigative Powers Tribunal got a much greater level of disclosure than anything we've seen so far in the inquiry. But these particular events, these events in the 1970s, if it wasn't for the inquiry, there's no other real sort of vehicle to to look into to, to this at all. And I mean. Though I, I mean, I am, I would say I'm one of the more, more critical people of the inquiry process. You know, there, there has been information that we had no idea of that the inquiry has put out into the public domain. I mean, I think I think it's fair to say the inquiry could could be better as well. Let's not. I mean, I think we we'd probably agree on that. But uh, and you know, there are, there are a number of things which I think the inquiry could could definitely be better on. And one of those is I feel is they are going through the registry files and deciding what's relevant or not. And my, in my view, everybody who's a core participant should have the complete contents of their registry file so that they can decide what's relevant or not. And, and liaise far better with the inquiry. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute some kind of truth and justice commission like we had in South Africa, but there should be a lot more trust by the inquiry in, uh, in in core participants. I mean, in terms of further actions you, you, you mentioned, I mean, 
Kate Wilson is a classic example of someone who's really uh, blazed a trail, if you like, in the investigatory uh, tribunal. And maybe that's something that we, you know, me as a, a lawyer with some of my other clients will be will be looking at doing. And certainly stemming from this as well, I think there's something that having represented a number of activists who were jailed as part of the Shrewsbury 24 uh, action in the 1970s, that'll be something that we will be pursuing in terms of trying to get further disclosure around those issues, because there are some documents which have still, even though it was 50 years ago, still yet to be provided. However, in terms of the inquiry, and I'm with you, there, there are things that we need to be critical about, but I think, and we need to raise them, and we need to raise them in the general public, but at the same time, we need to work with what we've got and try and put as much pressure on society as a whole or, or, to, or to, to put it out there to say to people, you be the judge, is this right? And, and I think the campaign opposing police surveillance uh, and other organisations like the Monitoring Group and uh, Police Spies Out of Liars, whatever, have done a, an amazing job with the press to, to try and, uh, and publicise it. But of course, we have an inquiry legal team which is keeping a very tight rein on things, as you know. Uh, and we'll, you know, we're working our way through it. But one thing that I think you said, which I think is really uh, a really good one, is how we how we use how we use the the inquiry process and the information that comes out of the, the inquiry. So, uh, and the fact that possibly three or four years down the line, when we get the inquiry report, it might not be what we want. But it, there's a there's there's a thing about how we. I mean, in terms of the way I bring litigation, I'll give you an example, is a recent case I actually lost in the Court of Appeal. This is a lawyer at like displaying their L's. Go on. <laughs> yeah. So I, I recently brought a case which was involving, um, it was actually a planning case, would you believe, but, it, but, but, but planning involving gentrification. And involving, you know, a development which didn't include a lot of social housing. And we brought a challenge to massively, well, to try and increase that. Not massively increase, actually, just, you know, it was piecemeal. But the litigation itself was useful for a number of reasons. One, we worked really closely with the campaign. And the campaign used every opportunity to bring, to spread the news about the litigation and what it was, what it was about and also the issues that it raised, because it issued wider issues beyond what it was actually about. And, and what it was able to do is it was by bringing the litigation, the campaign was able to use that court case as a focal point to keep it in the public eye and to keep the anti-gentrification protest going. Now, we lost the case, but in the course of the case, we actually obtained extremely useful, yet useful disclosure which will be useful going forward for the campaign as they bring other anti-gentrification legal cases or campaigns generally. And one of those issues was the fact that the council have allowed council officers to make decisions which should have been brought back to the planning committee, which is the essence of democracy, the planning committee being accountable. And also that by not being accountable, the we think the council officers have lost the council millions of pounds 
in money from the developer. Now that would never have been, we would never, the campaigners would never have been aware of that if we hadn't have brought the case. So yes, we lost the case, but in the course of the case, we've been able to highlight a number of issues. And I, I raise that only because, and as, as you've already alluded to, Tom, is the fact that, you know, we might get a report at the end of it saying, oh, everything's hunky-dory, yeah, Officer A and Officer B were naughty, but the rest of them were fine. But the fact of the matter is, I think if we're able to, as a campaign, highlight the injustices and highlight the scandals of this, actually, on one level, it might not actually matter what the final report says. Because by then, hopefully, we would have built up a head of steam that we would have we would have actually highlighted it so much that for the public, it, it's a scandal no matter what the, the, you know, the judgment is. And hopefully that's the case. The whole topic, I think, is really interesting. You mentioned it earlier where you were saying about, um, you know, the, the, the secondary level of scandal about it. You know, the, you know, we don't accept the undercover deployments in the first place. But once you, even people who might accept it, this thing's bad again. And I think like for me, I mean, I, I'm an abolitionist, right? You know, I mean, I, I, I believe in like abolishing the entire police force, let alone bloody undercover units, which definitely should be abolished. The majority of us who are campaigning about it certainly are coming from a um, quite a radical background. We're not hearing sort of like, I use this term, not, you know, but like reasonable uh, political positions. Apart from like, so we heard from um, Lord Hayne, who was, you know, very much, you know, the, the reasonable voice, I guess. But I mean, like for me, you know, as I was re- like reporting on what he was saying, it was a fair bit of biting my tongue, you know, about like kind of oof, this this liberal sort of like problem with the, you know, the, the, the particular overstepping of the mark here and there. But when it comes to like kind of getting this issue kind of in the public domain more, it's the scandal which sells, right? I mean, it's the, and, and it's those sort of arguments that we probably need to make if we're going to get it to a wider audience. I mean, I, I really have no answers whatsoever about how we do that, but I think it does present us a challenge. I think there are a couple of things stemming from that. I think the first thing is we're at the start of the inquiry and we're also at the start of... Um, uh, a lot of the core participants who are giving uh, evidence um, are uh, it's 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 um, it's very it's still at this point very per, it's very personal very personalised it it's it's uh, there's there's issues about um, potentially kind of um, you know remembering things and and being as as vocal as maybe. Uh, other core participants will be but I think as we go into tranche two and tranche three I think you I think and I hope that we're going to get a lot more um a lot more radical assessment by core participants as they give evidence I think the other thing is both you and I this is the first inquiry I've been in public inquiry I've been involved in um and probably the first one you've been involved in as well yeah man very much Yeah, and I think for me as well, and and for core participants, it's a learning curve. I think we're we're still learning how we're we're doing it and how we're going to present arguments. I mean, it's certainly for for me. I think one of the things that is there's there's a couple of things that are are gnawing at my soul, um, if you like. Um, One of them is um, this idea that uh, activists from uh, the the hard left, if you like, socialist party, uh, socialist party, socialist workers party, the international Marxist group, 
infiltrated the trade unions. And, and this, is a, this is a theme which has been developed not just by the undercover officers, but actually the amount of times I've heard counsel to the inquiry say infiltration of the trade unions. And it's kind of a complete misunderstanding, not only of the history of the trade union movement, which was co you know, contributed by you know, Marxists uh, over the years, you know, like even, uh, I think it was, was it Jenny Marx or uh, Mark, Karl Marx's daughter founded the GMB along with Will Thorne. So it's a complete misunderstanding of, of history, of the role that Marxists have played, for instance, in terms of um, developing the trade unions. Um, but also it's a complete misunderstanding of the trade unions themselves. The trade unions are an open house. They are a broad church. They represent anarchists, they represent Marxists, they represent a kind of, uh, you know, kind of liberal, liberal lefts. They, 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 they even represent conservatives who are members of trade unions. So it's a complete persona that somehow you infiltrate a trade union. And that, I know this is a small thing compared to the, to the bigger points you've made at the moment, but that is a, at the moment is a real bugbear. When, when I hear things like that, I just laugh at it because it just sounds so ridiculous, right? The idea that the left have infiltrated the trade unions. But as you, I mean, like as you say, you know, the, the, there is a lot of people who hear that and might might be taken in by that line of argument. And certainly, the bloody council inquiry I've been, which is was mental to me, really. Yeah, I mean, the amount of times I, I think, I, I mean, not loads, but several occasions, I've heard uh, counsel to the inquiry talk about infiltration of the trade unions by insert left group, IMG, at this stage, just, just, just to say the IMG for people who are listening is the international Marxist group who no longer exists, but were Trotskyists and the SWP, which most people know about. It's a ridiculous formulation, but it needs to, it's one of those things that actually needs to be challenged. It's a small thing. Don't get me wrong. It's a small thing, but it's quite important but it's illustrative as well, isn't it? I mean, like, so many times we've heard, like, uh, the inquiry. Well, one of the things that really irritated me is that they've been asking questions which I really feel like they should know the answers to already. Like, you know, they, they, they were, there was one about where they were asking, you know, what does blacks mean in the trade union context? And it was just like, I'm not, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, it's that, you know, something's been marked aside, you won't work on it. It's, it, you know, it would be discabbed to work on that. And it's the sort of thing that I thought anybody would know, but clearly these these high-flying lawyers just don't you know i agree there has been a it's been a, a, a surprise and, a, and of course just slightly going off the point we had one of the police barristers in in his opening statement referred to blacklisting as so-called blacklisting which i'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt saying it's called so-called it's called this but understandably you know it, it just seemed like he was doubting the whole idea of blacklisting which to be honest, as we know as activists, and I know as a lawyer, it's been well and truly well documented that it happened. Not only did it happen, we've got the records to show it, and the likes of the Blacklist Support Group, Dave Smith, etc., have, have proved it in court because multinational companies have compensated those who've been blacklisted as a result. The so-called lawyer, Oliver Saunders, who, who managed, you know, I mean, like... He who rep represents the, the the former undercover officers themselves. I mean, it wasn't the only time that he, you know, caused exasperation from so many people who, who heard what he had to say. I mean, I think you know, because of who he's representing, it's like you say, it's no wonder, but like, and maybe you know, there's a certain benefit of the doubt in that. But 
I mean, how on earth he's ended up in the position he has, I don't understand. I really don't. Uh, I mean, unless he's been instructed to say that, but it was provocative and it was completely unnecessary, as you say, completely unnecessary, particularly giving the one, the understanding of what blacklisting is. So it's not so called, even if you take a, oh, he's only calling it because if that's what it's called. Everybody knows it as blacklisting. You'd have to be, you know, bury your head in the sand uh, not to know what it, it what it is. And and I think, you know, as, as um, you know, supporters of the Blacklist Support Group, Dave Smith quite rightly pointed out, that has to be challenged. And it was very, very forcefully. And no doubt it will be, uh, at the at the next hearing. But going back to your point, that there has been at times a surprise by various barristers not to understand the various formulations. Now, whether it's just because they want to pull out the information from the uh, from the clients uh, or not, I think the re- they really is not. There really has to be a bit of a catch up on this. Even if you give them the benefit of the doubt, which you know, is open to question by everyone. There really has to be a catch-up on some of the terminology. But just going back to the point I was making, I'm, you know, particularly disturbed at this idea of infiltration of the trade unions. Um, Because I think the narrative there is playing to the police's agenda. It's not about infiltration. People join organisations because they're trade unionists. So you might be a trade unionist, start, you, you joined Unite, and then you join a political organization. So there's that infiltration. Also, you might join a political organization and they say you should be a trade union member. So you join a trade union. The trade unions are a broad church and it's not about infiltration. But I think there's a subtext to this personally. And that is the idea. And this goes back to the idea of subversion. right? So a lot of organizations have been deemed, quote, subversive because they believe they may not believe in parliamentary democracy, but they believe in another form of democracy because they do not believe putting a vote, crossing a box every five years is proper democracy. But I think they, they, that what the police, I think, are trying to do is to label certain groups or individuals as subversive and then be able to use that subversion or that definition as a way of spying on other organisations. So, oh no, I wasn't spying on this women's group or the anti-abortion campaign. I was spying on this subversive who was in the anti-abortion campaign, or I was spying on this subversive who was in the trade union. I wasn't spying on the trade union. The fact that I may have taken notes and fed that back, ah, well, that's just because I was reporting on events. And I think they have been, been spying on campaigns which shouldn't be inspired on, or trade unions they shouldn't be inspired on, but they've used the idea of subversion and subversive individuals or campaign or political parties as a kind of green light or a cover to do this massive spread. And um, for those who may not be following the undercover policing inquiry, or maybe, I mean, the spread goes, you know, just from trade unions to you know, I'm sure you can name all kinds of organisations, but, you know, there was a law centre had a had a file in its name. All kinds of organisations had files, which you're just thinking, how has this got a file? And I think what they've done is they've justified it by saying, ah, because a subversive was supporting it, 
or a subversive was at a meeting, therefore we'll open a file. Not on the on the organisation, but because a subversive was there. And I think that's another thing that the inquiry has to begin to tackle, that I think the, the police have used this broad definition of subversion and targeting so-called, quote, targeting subversive organisation as a screen to keep a watch on all kinds of organisations and therefore justifying it because sub quotes subversives are involved as we as we've already said you know the, the this inquiry op, uh, presents an opportunity as for us as activists campaigners against undercover policing it's a it's a fantastic opportunity uh, in, in lots of ways and i i really think we I, I, as you probably tell i want to try and exploit that as much as possible push it as much as possible but it doesn't come without cost. A number of the people who have been interviewed, a number of the the, the, the non-state, non-police corps participants who have been interviewed, have faced a fairly, well, I would call it hostile, certainly aggressive line of questioning from the council of the inquiry. It, it, it's certainly it's made a number of people who expect to be called later on really worry about is this just going to be another um, exercise in re-traumatization essentially you know I mean we, we saw um, Madeline was asked to relive the night that she first slept with an undercover officer Celia Stubbs was made to relive the day that her partner was beaten to death and there was a number of times where I I, re- I got quite upset by the the, the the attitude of the inquiry when it came to getting information from people I mean certainly Madeline had never spoken publicly before but Celia Stubbs has told that story a lot of times over the last 40 years. You know, I, I didn't think it was necessary for them to do that. And it's really how we continue to engage with the inquiry without kind of falling, you know, any, harming ourselves in, in other ways that, you know, we perhaps don't want to do. It's an interesting point because on the one hand, of course, the inquiry's got a, jo- a, got a job to treat, formally treat people, everyone effectively the, the same, I suppose. But I think... What sometimes I think the inquiry misses is this is an investigation into undercover policing. It's not an investigation into the core particip- the non-state core participants, the general public core participants, if you like. And I sometimes think you're right that the inquiry has taken a harder line or is an equally harder line uh, with you know the people that you've ma- named already when it was complete uh, when i i think it was unnecessary and i think pulling out those points it's definitely something that we need to discuss with the inquiry both as you know campaigners through uh, campaign opposing police surveillance spies out lives etc to put to open up a dialogue with the inquiry legal team about that and also for lawyers on behalf of the clients like myself on behalf of my clients to really stress and to remind people remind them that it's an you know it's an inquiry into undercover policing so you're absolutely right i think you know obviously for the record certain things need to be asked and certain things need to be go, to go on the agenda but um you know that there, there needs to be a sensitivity you know i think you you would understand this that there is that balance isn't there you know that like kind of as activists you know we're we're looking to, uh, you know, to draw attention to these things to try and like kind of, you know, call them out as wrong or whatever. But also, there's there's there's, there's a lot of trauma that's gone on, right? There's a lot of quite damaged people, and um, it's no good if we just like harm ourselves even more in that way. Um, but ha- can we? I mean, like, c- can 
can the justice system be made to be like on any level to be like kind of can it, can it change in that way? I'm not, I'm not sure it can. Is the point I'm making, I guess, is that like, are, are we are we destined to have equally hostile, aggressive questioning all the way through this process, or can that be challenged successfully? Do you think? I think it has to be challenged, um, and I think it's a really good point you're making. I think it has to be challenged. Whether it can be challenged successfully is is remains to be seen. I mean, the point I'd make about any justice, you know, the courts public inquiries, is they're not favourable terrain for working class people or campaigners, you know. So I think we've got to, you know, acknowledge that. They're not our terrain. Our terrain is our communities, our workplaces, building campaigns for justice, etc., etc. So they're not, you know, they're just not favourable terrain. So we can only do what's possible. And I think there has to be complaints made where we feel that counsel to the inquiry or opposing counsel from the police or whatever are asking unnecessary questions to the point that one, either they're hostile or two, forcing people to relive, you know, traumatic uh, events when, to be honest with you, most of it's on the record anyway, as you say, or, you know, questions can, you know, Questions don't have questions can be done to allow people time and space to to tell their story in their own way. So more open ended questions or whatever. But I mean, I think you know the the, the point is it's it's not a favourable terrain for working class people or campaigners or you know uh, you know whoever people who want justice, social justice. It's not the it's not favourable terrain. On that point, I mean, like you know, as well as being a lawyer, you are a socialist. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm often asked whenever I talk to other people about these things is like, oh, what does justice look like then? What do you want to come out of it? And I mean, like, I'll put that question to you, man. What do you think, what, 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 what can we hope to get out of this process? First of all, I'd like to see full and proper criticism of the type of surveillance that has happened accepting that it was completely and totally unnecessary, that it went at least far and beyond its original remit, not that its original remit was correct, but it went beyond that, and that proper guidelines coming out of it. Now, the difficulty we've got is, of course, guidelines are guidelines, but at least something that comes out of it to say this kind of thing shouldn't happen again, because when... In 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down and you had all this kind of critique and criticism of the Stasi, quite right, by the way, the Stasi and all these other security service organizations in, in Stalinist Eastern, Eastern Europe, the criticism was quite right. But the reality is there is a lot of similarities with what is going on here, They're both in terms of the intrusion, the scale, the depth, the impact, both in terms of people's personal lives, their, you know, uh, and, and issues like blacklist and relationships, all the other things, it's absolutely disgraceful. So I would like to think that at the end of this process, we've got a report which says the state completely overstepped the mark the undercover policing was completely, totally wrong. It was ill-conceived. 
ordinary policing, I would say, could have dealt with 90% of, of what, we've, what we've seen so far. Uh, and it was, you know, it just went too far. It was off the rails. And it was a waste of money, public money, public time. And there should be criticisms, I believe, of individual police officers who played that role. But more fundamentally, what I would like to see beyond that is I would like to see a critique of the managers, their managers going up to government. Because let, let's make no mistake about this. As we outlined in, in our opening statements in the recent tranche uh, on behalf of my clients, Robert Armstrong, who is the uh, chief of staff for the, for, for, for the prime minister's office for both uh, Heath and Wilson, signed this off repeatedly, signed this off. So it went up as high as government. I would like to see an investigation that goes as high as that and to, and to call people to account. I would also like, even though, strictly speaking, it doesn't come into the terms of reference because it's about policing, Obviously, you can you can you know you can you can you know you can you can question what the definition of policing is. It's not just what the spy cops were doing, but it's also what the secret state was doing. And I'd like to see an acknowledgement uh, that the, the secret state had a role and a guiding hand in what the special demonstration squad were doing. So that would be my outcome. That would be my what I would like to see as a as a criticism, and I think if we got that, I think we could celebrate that as as lawyers, as campaigners, and the general public because we're holding the state to account. Okay, admittedly, fifty years after the event, at its worst, if we don't get that, and as 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 certainly my core participants suspect is a maybe there'll be some criticism and there'll be some sympathy for some core participants, but largely it'll be like well, everything was fine. If we get that, then the only the one thing that we can do as campaigners is to use the information as proactively as possible. Um, but I think just the final thing, which I, I also am concerned about, and I, I, I'll be interested to hear your views about it as well, is I think amongst what I want to avoid amongst lawyers and campaigners is this obsession as well at the same time with the fact that he's a, spy cop and he's a spy cop and you know there's this kind of um uh you know in the future we're somehow hamstrung by the idea that we're being surveilled or we're we're being we're being because actually in a democratic society um in terms of the amount of austerity and injustice and all the rest of it's go on we have got a an absolute uh fundamental right not just a human right because that's mealy mouth but we've got a right to campaign for a better society. But I don't want that. I don't think it is, but I don't want that to be hamstrung by the idea that, oh, you know, maybe we're being spied on. If we're doing things openly, we're doing things, you know, properly campaigning, etc. We've got nothing to fear because we got here, I, I think, as a, as a socialist lawyer, we've got history on our side. I think, I think you're completely right. I think it's definitely been something which I think in the early days, particularly when we were first finding out about the undercover police after... You know, Peter Francis went whistleblower and so forth. When it was still really, we were really unsure of the detail. There was a lot of paranoia, particularly then, and it was quite hard, I think, for us as campaigners against undercover policing to not instill paranoia into other activist groups just by raising the issue. 
and I, I kind of hope that by the more the more detail that we've got about this, that hopefully it, we there's a bit less paranoia because people kind of have a have a real understanding of these things rather than just just being scared of everything because that that's definitely has happened and I think I think you know, we will. Obviously, some some people's personalities mean that they will be incredibly scared by anything like this, out of out of action, out of uh, campaigning. And there are people I I've, I've known who were active uh, in the past who are not anymore because of of these matters. But overall, yeah, it's essential that we carry on doing the things that we've always done. It's essential that campaigns carry on campaigning as they've always done. Oh, just just to put back the question back to you, to you, Tom. What what would you see as your best conclusion, or or you know, as a a minimum what would you like to see come out of it i mean i guess as a minimum like i mean i'm not i'm not particularly optimistic or hopeful generally but i mean as a minimum when fresh revelations come out that they are released to the widest possible audience so that people can make up their own minds ideally from my point of view um what i would really like to see happen is for you know a snowball effect of our understanding of what the police are in society the role they've played in society the role, how they've shaped modern britain uh, to be accepted for the negative influence that it's been i think that's the uh, and like you say history is on our side but you know history is rewritten all the time and i think that uh, it's uh, we've got an opportunity to really show how modern britain was shaped by the secret state and the repression of legitimate democratic um, movements, the, the 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 holding back of social progress by the state has um, led to so many of the modern problems that we have. Our, our failure to address the deeply racist, uh, sexist society, homophobic society in which we live is la- is partially because that the state has used the establishment has used the police in general, but undercover police particularly, in order to hamstring those and and suppress those movements which would seek to to change those things and i think that you know the best that we can hope for is that 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 narrative that that the a very clear narrative that i'm seeing sort of by by looking at these gets accepted as mainstream history i mean that that's what's happened that's why britain stayed allied to, to racist africa for so long that's why um you know the the, the britain you know continues to have a, a, a huge racism problem you know that, that's why you know so many of these things exist is because the police well, the establishment through the police have allowed the far right to flourish and the far left to be suppressed you know i mean it's on, on, a, on a like a legal level i don't think i have any expectations at all I don't believe that, I mean, like when the report comes out, I mean, I've hopefully I've invested enough in this that I'll bring myself to read it, but I wouldn't blame anybody for not even bothering to read it um, because it's not about that. It's the, it's the opportunity the disclosure gives us as activists. It's that raw material that we're getting from this process. The ability to look at the undercover cops as they give evidence for me is, I think, is an opportunity that I can't pass up. It's not that the the questions they're being put to them are completely different to the ones I would want put to them, and the way the evidence will be used is completely different to what how I would want it to be used. But it's an opportunity for me to and for people like me to to use that, you know. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think it's a shame that there's one or two organisations that has decided not to take part for various uh, political reasons, and I, I respect that on one level. But I, I think it is an opportunity um, to have a look at. The issue of um, of how undercover policing, at times, and the and the individual police officers at times, had an effect to stifle movements. Um, I mean, I don't think they derailed them to the point where they were no longer. But 
I mean, you know, is it right that we have police officers who target at the time the anti-apartheid movement, which history has shown was completely correct, and and it should not have been. I mean, what a waste of police. I mean, this is the issue. What a, I mean, we might disagree, uh, particularly about the, the nature of police, the nature of police, and whether we need a police force. But even if we look at the waste of resources, the amount of resources that's gone in that could have not necessarily gone for to other policing aspects, but could have gone to other things. I mean, there has been this um, demand for defund the police, but that's defund the police so that the social problems that the police seem to be policing are, you know, uh, society is using the funds for better housing, et cetera, you know, other, you know, jobs, or whatever. And I, and I, I don't know, it, it's, for those who are listening, I mean, some of the organisations that the spy cops have, have targeted through the 70s, as we've seen, you know, you kind of think, why? What's the point? I mean, we know why, but, you know, for, uh, you know, the rhetorical question to everybody who's new to this is, why would you target the anti-apartheid movement? It's, it's campaigning against racist you know, uh, you know, racist policies of the South African government, supported by the British government. Why would you? Why spy on that? It's a disgrace. It is. I mean, I mean, I mean, the simple answer is is that because the British establishment supported racist Africa, and ideologically agreed with it. And I mean, the reason the reason they wanted to suppress the women's liberation movement is they thought that women shouldn't have full rights. You know, they that that literally it's. It's the worst possible answer. The, the reason why they did it is the worst possible answer, and that is the only possible answer, quite frankly. I think. No, absolutely, and uh, you know, uh, you know, hopefully for people who are listening, I do also know the answers. I think I was thrown out rhetorically as a question, as opposed to. But I mean, it's it's uh, you know to get beyond to get beyond even you know the closer circle of political activists. It's almost those rhetorical questions we need to throw out to people. Why? Why? What's the point? What is the actual point of this? It, there's no point, and they, as I said before, they talk about you know one of the justifications for undercover policing is this issue of subversion, and the problem with that is it's such a broad definition that in effect so many people were caught by subversion, and that could be anything at all, including anti-apartheid, anti-racist policies against police violence, about deaths in custody, about, you know, living wage, about strikes. This was all subversion as far as the state was concerned. And on that basis, absolutely disgraceful. But it's this, it's kind of that message that we need to get out. Why are you doing this? Why has the state done this? You know, almost rhetorically. I know we know the answers, excuse me, and many of the people who are listening probably know the answers, but Anyone knew why? What's the justification? And obviously, you can email Tom and let him know. I think that's one of the things that um, you know, because there, there's always this danger that, that, that I feel of like kind of uh, people kind of going, well, you know, we weren't doing anything wrong. We were just standing up for what's right, and uh, we were being held back from doing what was right. But then there's this idea, well, actually, it was subversion because. The, the the great injustice, the great wrong is the state. It's all coming from the state. It's all coming from the establishment. It's coming from the British establishment. And that actually, to not be subversive of the British establishment is to be complicit in their crimes. And that actually, we should be like, yes, I am a subversive. 
yes, I wish to see the overthrow of the not just the British state, but the entire establishment. I, you know, I mean, I think it's the only just answer, right? Is is a complete change in the way this is, country is run. There's a, there's a danger that if we that we're on this defensive of like kind of oh, you know, we were we were just being perfectly reasonable, and you know, everybody's against the apartheid now. And it's like, well, also one of the one of the groups that we will we'll hear later on as this inquiry goes on that we're targeting was the anti-NATO movement, right? And like, I think the anti-NATO movement, like, I mean, history's not on its side yet, but it bloody will be. Do you know what I mean? Like, NATO is a terrible, terrible institution, and we should be against it. You know, I mean, like, at the moment, you know, Britain, NATO still exists, and Britain's still a part of it. Uh, but like, I think you know, history hasn't proved us right fully yet, but it will. I think I think that's a really good point. It's a it's a discussion about. And I think it is. It's a really good discussion because it's a discussion about how we present this to the general public, you know, because I think that's an important thing. Because obviously, during the course of the inquiry, we're, you know, we're full in it. We were, you know, many, not just the lawyers, obviously the, the core participants of, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of political activism and have already drawn certain conclusions like yourself, like myself, whatever. And it's about how do we get the message, how do we get the message across, not just about, the, you know, how Spy Cox has affected individuals and campaigns, etc., but also the whole question of, you know, what is subversion? Is it subversive to, to, to be, uh, you know, campaigning for better wages? Well, maybe it is. So maybe that makes us all subversive. So therefore, we're caught by this whole thing. But, it, you know, it is about raising the question skillfully. And maybe it's about raising numerous questions, not just in a set way, but maybe different ways to kind of gauge the population depending where they're at as well. But it, it is a, a really useful discussion. And, and uh, you know, hopefully as, uh, as, as lawyers who are also in camp, you know, involved in campaigns, but also activists who involved in 20 30 40 years of campaigns we can you know we can continue that discussion how we present it to you know not just the detail of undercover policing and how it's affected people and the, the scandal of it you know in terms of the obvious scandals of the you know women's you know in long-term relationships the use of their children's identities but also just the general scandal of you know people being you know being involved in a campaign and having their personal information in a file, which who knows what it's being used for. We say in certain instances it's used, which will affect people getting jobs in the future. And in fact, we even, you know, we we're probably going to see, I think, in the course of disclosure, people potentially have lost their jobs as a result of campaigning. Um, so there's those obvious scandals. But then it's the, the next question is, well, what kind of... Per- what kind of if we want policing, what kind of policing do we want? And you know, it's about opening those discussions as well, which is you know wider wider questions, which no doubt we can't necessarily resolve on this podcast. Nor does anyone listening particularly want to hear us. But you know, in terms of how we present it, we are really useful. Cheers, Paul. And um, where can people find you online? You can find me at the uh, www plc.org.uk, which is the Public Interest Law Centre, which is a legal charity which I helped establish five years ago. We're coming up to our fifth anniversary this September. We started with a desk and a phone. Some would say we haven't gone much further than that, but um, we now have three lawyers, uh, so, um, you know, uh, a number of project workers, 
And I'd like to think we're doing some really, really good work around the a whole variety of fields. Cheers, Paul. For more on this topic, check out spycops.info.